Son's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, what is it like to be a prophet in your own hometown? Uh, For Pete Doherty, um, we got a glimpse of what it's like to be a prophet in his own hometown. If you don't know who Pete Doherty is, he's a beat writer for the Green Bay Packers, and he writes for the Green Bay Press Gazette. And uh, he was asked a question this week um, on the radio, and the question was, how do you think the Packers are going to do after the bye week? And Pete's answer was, with our defense, I don't think we're going to do very good at all by traveling to both the undefeated L.A. Rams and then all the way to the other side to face the New England Patriots the week after. Needless to say, many people called in and were very upset with Pete's dour outlook at uh, the Packers season. And it was really interesting. I haven't heard this very often, but Pete gave a rare insight of what it's like to be in his position as a beat writer for the Packers in his own hometown. And he said this, I know, I know, people want to say that I'm being pessimistic. But the truth is, in my job, my job is not to be an optimist or a pessimist. It's to be a realist. And he says, what might sound like pessimism is me taking an honest look at what I see and to prepare you for what might come. Well, how do you respond to the hard message of a hometown prophet? This morning, we're not going to hear from a sports writer from Green Bay, but we're going to hear from a weeping prophet from Judah. And just as there are characteristics of how we might respond to Pete Doherty, there are characteristics about how we might respond or how we do respond to Jeremiah. And we're going to look at three different characters and how they respond to Jeremiah. And the question I want to ask for you today is this. Which one are you? Which one are you? Well, let's look together, shall we? Jeremiah chapter 38. We're going to look at verses 1 to 13. It's printed in your worship guide or on page 666 of the Bible of the your pew bibles right here. Jeremiah 38. I'm going to try as hard as I can. These are probably one of the harder names in the Bible to pronounce. So Now Shepta the son of Matan, um, Gedaliah the son of Pasher, Jukal the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher the son of Malchiah heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord, He who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, This city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the official said to the king, 
Let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in his city and the hands of all the people by seeking, uh, speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. And King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. When Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch, who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, Take thirty men with you from here and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits in the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with the ropes and lift him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. All are like, like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Well, if you're just joining us, welcome. We're going through the book of Jeremiah. Um, not the easiest book and the easiest message, um, but all I'll say to that, imagine being Jeremiah saying the message, okay? Uh, that would be pretty difficult. And imagine being 16, 17, or 18 years old and being tasked to preach this message and doing it for 40 plus years, you see, Jeremiah is communicating the word of the Lord and the Lord's power to overthrow nations, to supplant them, but also the Lord's power to build them and to plant them. In the beginning, as this 16 or 17 or 18-year-old was about to give this message, the Lord encouraged him. And he said, Jeremiah, you will be like a fortified city an iron pillar, a bronze wall. Priests and kings will fight against you, but the Lord will be with you. Here we see in this passage the very fruition of what the Lord has told Jeremiah. Priests and kings and officials against him. And now we see that Jeremiah is 40 years into his message. You see, it's bad enough to tell a hard message when things are going well. People might think you're crazy. What are you talking about? Things are going to be hard and difficult. Things seem to be going well. And things for Judah were going well. Assyria was decreasing in power. Judah was rising in power. 
things were going well. And so the message early on in Jeremiah's career was just weird. I don't know what you're talking about. Everything is fine. But now, when Jeremiah shares this message, things are on the line. Things are difficult. Pressure is on Judah. And when you give a hard message when the pressure is on, people don't like it. I'm trying to equate it the best way I can. It's probably like at the end of a game. Watching a game, being in a game, the pressure is on. And there is someone that says to you before, you know, maybe the winning field goal or the losing field goal, whatever it might be, the person says, I know he's going to miss it. I know when I watch games with people like that, I just want to throw something at them. Yeah, you know? And that's the kind of thing with Jeremiah. The game is on the line. And he's telling hard things. You see, Jeremiah is preaching this message when Judah is under siege by the power of Babylon. Through 40 years of giving his message, Jeremiah has seen what's happened to Israel and Judah. They're in between warring nations. Assyria and Babylon to the north, Egypt to the south. And these nations go back and forth battling, and Judah is just kind of caught between them. And in that, he's seen kings come and go. He's seen Josiah killed by the Egyptians. And then Jehoahaz was put into power, and then he was exiled by the Egyptians. And then the Egyptians put Jehoiakim in power. Then Jehoiakim was killed by the Babylonians. And then Jehoiakim was put into power. And then Jehoiakim was captured by the Babylonians and put into exile. And then Zedekiah was put on the throne by the Babylonians. And that's the situation we're in. And you see that um, these kings, rather than relying on the power of the Lord, calling the people of Judah to repentance, The people instead relied on the powers of Egypt or Babylon to be able to help them out. And Jeremiah was saying from the very beginning, he was saying, listen, there is going to come an army from the north that is going to judge us for the things that we're doing. That was even before Babylon was even powerful. He was saying this was going to happen. And now that has come to fruition. So, look, sorry, I'm going to go a little bit more history so you know what's going on. In 597, Babylon came, took Jehoiakim up to Babylon, took some of the leading officials of Judah and its people, its artisans, and took them into exile. But they left the city intact, Judah intact, the walls intact, the temple intact. And they put Zedekiah, who is Josiah's youngest son, in power. But something has happened. Zedekiah, again, not listening to Jeremiah that Babylon will come in judgment, sides with Egypt and says, Egypt, you will rescue us from Babylon. 
Little does he know that Egypt is a losing power to Babylon. And in his siding with Egypt, Babylon has had enough of Judah. And in 588, this is, you know, nine years later, 11 years later, what happens is that Babylon comes down to Judah, destroys all the cities surrounding Jerusalem, and then lays siege to Jerusalem. And this is where Jeremiah speaks in this kind of setting. Jerusalem under siege. Whether it was one or two years, there's debate how long it was actually under siege. But this is what's happening. Food is scarce. Water is scarce. There are problems. And here Jeremiah is speaking. Could you imagine the pressure for the king, the people that were still living there, the officials, what kind of pressure that were, they were facing? And the question is, how do you listen to a message from the Lord, a message from Jeremiah, a word that is true when you're under pressure and you're under siege? Again, maybe the best way I can equate it. When my kids are fighting over a toy, I mean, they are under siege, okay, basically. They're under siege about what's going to have the toy. And I take away the toy from them. Now they are very upset, okay, because no one's getting it, okay? And when you say things like, you are being unreasonable. This toy is not yours. It's your sister's. Or you say things like, the way that you're acting is detrimental to your character, Do you think your kids are listening to the message at all? No, they're screaming about the toy. They don't want to hear from you at all. I am so glad that as we grow older, we do not have that problem of selective listening when we are under pressure. Do we listen well when we are threatened? When people are trying to tell us the truth, when the Lord is trying to tell us the truth, these are changes that you need to make in your marriage. You you don't realize how hard my marriage is, how I'm under siege. These are some changes that you probably need to make at work and how you relate with your coworkers or your boss. You don't realize the pressure that I'm under in my job. These are some changes you probably need to make in what you ingest into your body. What you eat, what you drink, what you consume, what you watch. You don't realize the pressure I'm under in my life. I need some kind of release. How do you react? How do you listen? How do you hear when you're under siege? I love this passage because it gives us three characters that respond in three different ways. So let's look at them, shall we? Characters number one. I'm going to call them the false four. 
Okay, I'm not going to repeat their names because I did it once. I'm not going to do it again. They're the beginning of the chapter and they're very difficult. But these are some of the ranking officials in Jerusalem. And they are telling the king that Jeremiah is a problem. You really can't blame them, right? The city is under siege and Jeremiah is telling the people in the city, get out (laughs) because Babylon is going to destroy this place and is going to kill you. And the truth is... You don't want to hear that message if you're an official because you want the soldiers to be emboldened, the people to stay, to fight, and hear this prophet whose message is getting out somehow throughout um, Jerusalem is influencing people. And they are not happy with what Jeremiah is saying. So again, one, he could be, they think he's a pessimist, killing morale, Two, the worst, he could be a traitor from Babylon, just trying to give Babylonian propaganda in the city. Well, I want to answer those two objections. Number one, uh, Jeremiah has no love for Babylon. If you read Jeremiah, you realize he says that Babylon too will come under the judgment of God. Two, Jeremiah isn't simply being a pessimist. He actually hears from the Lord and he's telling these people what is going to happen. You know, I call these four individuals the false four because they have a false view of what true welfare of the city and peace of the city is. What do they say to the king? They say, then the official said to the king, verse 4, let this man be put to death for he is weakened in the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people. Again, this is the word shalom that we've seen constantly through the book of Jeremiah. He's not seeking the peace, not seeking the holistic care of these people, but their harm. So what do they do? They say, you know, we can't kill him because that would be wrong and we've tried to do that in the past. We'll just put him in this large cistern. Okay, Might be a very deep one, very big one. And we know it's in the, the king's son's court and it's maybe it's a broken cistern. Applying back to the cistern we look in the past. Maybe it's just because there's no water flowing into Jerusalem. It's empty and it's muddy and it's murky and he's in this place. You can imagine, again, like I said earlier, he might not be able to lay down because it's so muddy that he actually has to stand. And you can imagine how long a person might be able to live in such a place like this dug out rock area that's muddy that he can't crawl out of and dark. And this is where Jeremiah is. This is where he has been put. You know, these people think, these officials think that they are truly speaking the message of peace, peace to the people. They are the ones truly caring for the welfare of the city. Jeremiah talks about this earlier. He says, this is what you people say. You cry out, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You see, 
Jeremiah says, I'm actually speaking for the welfare of the people. I'm actually caring for the people because I think they are in serious trouble. I know the message of the Lord. And if they do not do something different, they will die. You might call it pessimism. I call it a word from the Lord. I call it the realistic view of what is happening. Come on. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. Why do you always have to look at the negative? Can't you just look at the positive? Why a confession of sin every week? Why this whole cross thing and talking about blood and and Jesus dying? Can't you just give us a message of love and hope? Just give us peace. Why do we have to go through this book of Jeremiah and hear about judgment? I wonder, who is really after your welfare? Those that are around you that say, oh, it's not that bad, Peace, peace. You're doing great. Just keep on living the way that you want to live. The world isn't that bad. What's all this message about sin? Come on. Does it really have bad consequences and ramifications? Sometimes, (laughs) sorry, I'm going to rub my head for a second. Um, Sometimes I wonder what world some people are looking at. Sin has consequences. I don't know if you know that. It does. I don't care if you live in the United States. I don't care if you live in Venezuela. That's a mess right now. (laughs) I don't care if you live in Syria. Wherever you live, sin has consequences and it's ugly. Very ugly. If you truly want to get a full picture of love and hope and peace, you can't overlook sin. You see, when you see the price paid to overcome the brokenness of this world, not simply pessimism, but reality, when you fully see the price that was paid to overcome sin on the cross, you will truly see a full picture of what love is. Of what peace is. That's when you'll see real love. Not blinders, but reality of how this world looks. Reality that sin has consequences temporally and eternally. I kind of know, since you get pushback from this, it sounds like a very conservative message. This isn't simply a conservative message or a liberal message. I think one of the greatest pictures of Jeremiah in the 20th century was Martin Luther King Jr. You know, when other people said to him, come on, Martin Luther, it's not that bad. What's going on with segregation in our nation? It's not that bad. Just look the other way. Peace. Peace. 
And that's how many people looked at the problem of segregation in America in the 20th century. But you know what? Martin Luther King, I don't know if you know this, he was a pastor. And he liked the prophets. And he really spoke the message of Jeremiah. And he said, you know what? Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is instead looking at really what the problem is in dealing with the injustice. And just like Jeremiah, he too was jailed. He too was shut up. I wonder, do you hear from Jeremiah like the false four? When people point out things or the Lord points out things to you, you try to silence them. Oh, you're just after this in my life. I know how it is. You don't really love me. You're just after this. You know what, God? You're just trying to control me. I know what religion does. It just tries to bring me down. I know, I know. You know, when I'm under siege, I'm going to act the way I want. Truth is, I don't even know this, but when you're under siege, you're sometimes seeing the consequences of the way that you've lived. And God in his grace sometimes puts messengers around you in that place to try to love you and try to care for you. Maybe that messenger is speaking right now through his word to you right now. And as much as you try to bury it, as much as you try to say, oh, this is just religion talk. This is just what the church does. Maybe it is his grace trying to break through and say, there is judgment for the way that you're living. Will you actually listen to the Lord? Will you actually turn? I won't use the nice word turn. Maybe use the more pejorative one. Will you actually repent? Well, that's one reaction. Stuff it underground. Put it in a cistern. Get rid of it. That's one reaction to listening to Jeremiah. And then there's another one that I think is just as false and actually might be worse. See, the false four were a lot like the last king, or two kings before, Jehoiakim. Outright rejection of the message of Jeremiah. I don't even know what Jehoiakim did, but Jehoiakim, he heard the message in the scrolls that Jeremiah had written through Baruch, and he took them, and he ripped them up, and he threw them in the fire. That's what I think about Jeremiah's message, Jehoiakim said. But Zedekiah, you know, he's a new king. Maybe he'll listen. But this is what Jeremiah says about Zedekiah. This kind of frames Zedekiah's rule. Chapter 37, verse 2. If you have a Bible, you can look at it. You don't have to. It says, verse 2, But neither he, meaning Zedekiah, nor his servants, nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. Surely not Zedekiah. Surely Zedekiah listened to the words of Jeremiah because twice 
Zedekiah freed Jeremiah from prison, one in a jail cell, one in a cistern. Surely this guy is listening to the message of Jeremiah. But no, Zedekiah in his vacillating, in his going back and forth, he too does not listen to the Lord. You see, after Jeremiah is rescued in chapter 38, Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, and if I give you counsel, because Zedekiah is asking for Jeremiah to speak into his life, and Jeremiah says, and if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. You see, Zedekiah was one that nods to the message of God. He says, yeah, yeah, I hear that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I hear that. But really, he's just giving lip service because he really never does anything about it. Come on. It's a hard position to be in to be a king. He's in a tough place. One of it, some officials are telling me you should side with Egypt. Other people are telling him you should side with Babylon. He is in a tough place. What is he going to do? Of course he vacillates between here and there. And if he concedes, all these people hate him that are in exile in Babylon. If he goes there, they're going to hate him there. This is a tough place to be. I love what Paul says. I think he speaks to a person like Zedekiah and he might be speaking to some of how we react. He says, people that are really mature will not be like these people. So they may no longer be like children. That we will no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see, Paul is talking about Zedekiah too. You're just tossed by the waves of the sea. When something says something over there, you side with that. When someone says something over there, you side with that. You are anchored to nothing. Sure, you might nod your head on Sunday morning. You might nod your head to your friend that says, oh, maybe you should think about living differently. Maybe you nod your head to your parents but then you just go back to your habit. I need something to numb my pain. You don't realize I'm alone and I need a relationship. Why can't I act out of my being alone? I work hard. Why can't I enjoy life and take on pleasures? See, under siege, where do you turn? Do you just kind of float by the waves of the sea? Are you like Zedekiah that nods to Jeremiah, but really when it comes and matters, you just do your own thing? I was talking to David this week, reading some of the surveys that have come out. Uh, there's a, a survey that's given every year by Ligonier Ministries. Uh, it's R.C. Sproul's. Uh, a ministry that he started, and uh, they kind of give a, th a state of theology in America. And they specifically polled um, what he terms evangelicals. Evangelicals are people that say, um, oh, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, you know, I'm born again. Those, that's kind of the best way you can describe an evangelical. 
I would describe myself as an evangelical. And they asked the question of evangelicals, um, they asked this question, um, is worshiping alone or with one's family a valid replacement for regular church attendance? Is worshiping alone or with one's family a valid replacement for regular church attendance? 60% of evangelicals said yes. 12% said, I don't know. That is 72%. This isn't the culture. This is evangelicals that say, worshiping alone or with my family is a replacement for going to church. Oh, here's the pastor trying to get people here on Sunday morning. I see how he works. You know, he's making sure I'm here every week. No. What I'm telling you is, how can you be anchored firmly in the Lord if you are not constantly hearing the message from the Lord in your life from others, from the sacraments, from the Word? You will be tossed like the waves of the sea if you are not anchored in him and around others that are telling you the truth. I'm not saying that for attendance. Okay, I don't know if you know this, but attendance is not my marking of success in a church. I hope you've known that by now. But instead, I care for you as sheep. We need each other. If you're not around others in the body, in healthy body life, you will be just like Zedekiah, tossed by the waves of the sea. Well, there's got to be someone that responds correctly, right? Well, obviously Zedekiah responded correctly because he freed Jeremiah from the cistern. But I don't know if you know this, Zedekiah didn't come to that realization on his own. Who helped Zedekiah come to this realization? This guy named Ebed